So empathy is kind of a, a trickle down effect and you've really got to make sure that we're designing the right things for these other, you know, it's not just the patient endpoint. There are other endpoints involved in almost every digital healthcare intervention that we're doing. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, most people leave that as a second thought. Yeah. And, it's, and it's all being done in the conference room and they're not spending time in the field to see those problems. The Medical Alley podcast is brought to you by MentorMate. MentorMate empowers healthcare clients to deliver on their mission and transform the human experience through technology. For over 20 years, clients have trusted MentorMate to guide their vision, design innovative products, and build secure solutions while understanding the specific nuances of their industry. MentorMate's global team in the U.S., Eastern Europe, and Latin America helps clients in all sectors of healthcare transform their organizations. From Fortune 500 pharmaceutical companies and commercial payers to hospital systems, medical device manufacturers, and beyond. Learn more at mentormate.com healthcare. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening to everyone out there in Medical Alley. Thank you for joining us on another episode of the Medical Alley podcast. This is your host, Frank Jaskolke, and we're joined by a repeat guest today, actually maybe even a three-peat guest. I'm very excited to have this discussion. I think we'll have a, a fun one, an interesting one, and one that I suspect many of you out there listening will have some comments on, which I would welcome. Joined today by Denny Royal, who's the Chief Design Officer at MentorMate, and we're going to talk a little bit about digital health, about design, recent acquisition, a whole bunch of different things. Denny, it's good to have you back. Thanks for having me back. Glad to be here. Yeah. Um, you you recently had put out an article that had a, a fun title. It asked if digital healthcare is dead. And I, I want to start on that and just ask, is digital healthcare dead? Absolutely not. We're not. just getting started. Okay. We're just getting started. All right. Talk about that. Like what, tell the listeners, like, what was this premise? So, you know, there's a lot of discussion in the space right now. Funding's down yep. in a lot of places, right? Like on the, which I think is kind of actually maybe a good thing because I saw a lot of things getting funded. A lot of froth. A lot of froth, a lot of vaporware sorts of things. Um, but, you know, I also, I, I've been having that conversation with some of the, the bigger pharmaceutical companies, yeah. device manufacturers, et cetera. And, and they're all asking that same question because they're looking at their endpoint solutions and, and kind of asking the question, what went wrong? Why aren't we connecting with right. patients? Why aren't we connecting with physicians? What's going on with this endpoint solution? And what can we do to change that? Um, and the, 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 the topic has taken an interesting turn at, at, at another event I was at recently mm. and you know, there was some executives from a large, very large pharmaceutical that will remain nameless that stood up and said, you know, part of it is, is we've tried to tackle this thing all by ourselves mm. and it's not working. Maybe go get some expertise in other areas. Mm. And when I say that, when I think about that, you know, when I think about MentorMate and even our namesake and what that means is, yeah. you know, we spend a lot of time guiding people through these processes. Um, drug manufacturers came up and they make drugs. They make yeah. wonderful drugs that do awesome things for people to help them heal. Uh, just like, other customers of ours do other things. We've got fintech customers. We've got Mr. Jim's pizza. That guy just wants to continue to grow his, his pizza business. And not everybody has the wherewithal and the capabilities of being a product manager. And unfortunately now we are all digital product managers, whether we want to be or not. Yep. Right. So if you're a pharmaceutical company, suddenly you find yourself in this other space that is digital and digital health. Uh. And 
you know, you came up running processes around drug discovery and drug manufacturing, yeah. not around agile methodologies and design thinking methodologies mm-hmm. to figure out the right thing and, 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 and behavior methodologies that are going to identify the right way to guide that intervention from a digital aspect. The other thing I see a lot of people doing wrong is, is not only not getting in touch with the end consumer, the other person on, on the right. other side of that screen, but we often, when we do do that work, a lot of people take that out of context and they only think about the interaction of that screen. Everything we do digitally happens in context, right? right? We're sitting in this room right now doing things. We've got the monitor boards in front of us. That, different products but yeah, there's, there's all sorts of yeah. digital things going on here, but it is in the context of this conversation, right? And in the context of this room. <sighs> and a lot of people don't think about the other behaviors, context, triggers that are involved with why is this person interacting with this digital intervention yeah. at this point in time? Interesting. Right. If, I, if I'm a pharmaceutical company, I've been used to, I, I build a pill or an injectable that, you know, is going to be used by a person for their disease, but it's a rel- called a relatively easy thing. I take the pill, I mm-hmm. take the injection. The context of that is there, but maybe in order of magnitude simpler than if I've got an app on my phone that's interacting with a bunch of different technologies and I'm trying to live my life every day and not think about this disease. So what are you, what are you then telling these companies? Or maybe what was this pharmaceutical company imploring the rest of the world or the industry to do? To go out and get other help, to get, yeah. to get help that's outside of, you know, to, to get help from experts like us. And I'm not mm-hmm. saying everybody has to come to Entermate, but, but, but go get, people, go get people that know the digital space. Go get people that understand the behavioral space. Go get people that understand service design at a deep, deep level. Yeah. Because a lot of what we're talking about when we're in context, that is a service design. You're dealing with humans on stage, off stage. Uh-huh. Are we in a clinical setting? Are we in a, uh, a physical therapy setting? Are we in a home setting? Is it is it the patient that's doing the administering of right. said drug or is it a, is it a caregiver? Right. And how do we treat that caregiver versus a patient? So I worked on a fatal disease that impacts children mm-hmm. and it's genetically passed on. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not going to say what, what it was yeah. or, or what, because I'm, I'm not supposed to talk about it in, in great depth. But the one thing we found, we went and did a bunch of behavioral research around it. And what we were finding out is because it was genetically passed on, mm-hmm. the caregiver, parent, oh. had a profound sense of guilt. Right. So that guilt is a context that we were working with that caused a whole bunch of different behaviors on whether they were going to be able right. to give their child, you know, a baby, this injection or not. Yeah, and yeah. it just put a lot of different context and a lot of, it, it dramatically changed our approach to how that molecule was going to be marketed. Uh, what the rituals yeah. around administering that molecule were going to look like, how nurses were going to help coach that caregiver and, and parent and how they were going to deal with it. And it changed all of that dramatically. So it was yeah. part service design, part behavior design. And then there were some digital interventions with it too. I mean, that also sounds like even if it, I think you just said it, even if it wasn't a digital product, that sort of work, that sort of research to go into developing even a drug mm-hmm. would be quite valuable. So maybe could you back up for a moment I think a good chunk of our audience maybe basically understands the concept of like human-centered design, Mm -hmm. service design, those sorts of things. But could you level set for the audience, human-centered design, what are we talking about? You know, it's a really good methodology for identifying the people with the problem Mm -hmm. and and what that unmet need is, Mm -hmm. right? So we get really close to that user 
Uh, we understand that user in context. It means going to the field. A lot of people do lip service to human center yeah. design, and it's happening in a conference room, and those decisions mm-hmm. are being made. And, and I run into this the all the time. The context isn't right. Yeah, yeah. The context isn't right. It's not observable, et cetera. So observing those individuals, you know, patients, physicians, whatever, nurses in context, super, super important to getting to the right endpoint solution. So. You go to the field, you do that work, you spend that time with folks. Um, and like I said, it's really good at identifying the the people. It's a, it's really good at identifying who they are and what their unmet needs are. It doesn't tell us why they're doing what they're doing, though. And this is where that behavior science layer comes in, right? Like a lot of designers, we've talked about this before when mm-hmm. you were at the office, a lot of designers, we are going to design towards what we would like people to do. Yeah. Or a pharmaceutical company uh-huh. or whatever digital therapeutic thing, they're going to design based on what they want the patient to do. How much does that change if we design around what they're actually going to do based yep. on human behavior, biases and heuristics and, and all oh, of the yeah. things that go into making us all unique. We're all different and we're, we're, we're doing that stuff, but there's kind of traceable things that are part of the human condition that indicate behavior and, 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 and cause certain behaviors to happen. Now, if we're yeah. designing for how they're really going to behave, then I've already kind of crossed some barriers to entry with what that digital intervention looks like. If I know kind of what they're going to do, if they're going to be an adherence or they're not going to be an adherence and what gets in the way of them being an adherence again, in context and behaviorally, then I can start to shift how that thing operates and what it does and how it interacts with a particular individual. Yeah. So if I, if I come back then to your comment on the the pharmaceutical company at that event, Mm -hmm. it sounds like, They've realized yeah. they need to go down that path. Do, do you get a sense? I'll say the the royal we, the broader industry. Are are we starting to get that that we need to go down that path, or is it still we're very entrenched in that's the way we've always done things? I believe we're very entrenched in that. Yeah. that's the way we've always done. I mean, we're we're getting farther. You know, there's lots of discussions around. Agile methodologies for actually doing the engineering on the project. Agile is not a method to get to the right kind of solution right. for a, a problem, though. It's it's once you've decided what that solution is, what's the right way to build it, mm-hmm. right? And I think that that people got stuck and, and enamored with that and some of the dogma of of that. It's it's still the right way to do that engineering once you've figured out sure. how to solve that problem. But I think a lot of times that design piece really gets still overlooked. Design with a capital D still really gets overlooked. Mm-hmm. And most people think about it still to this day as an afterthought and, and mostly aesthetics versus mm-hmm. true problem solving and, and identifying the right problem. I mean, a lot of what we do with the human centered design space is, is identifying the right problem to solve to begin with. Yeah. Um, Cause most people come with the wrong problem in mind. And if you look at why most large um, enterprise level technology efforts fail, 70% of them that fail, mm-hmm. fail because of ill-conceived problem definition. Yeah. So defining the problem right to begin with is, is a huge piece of it. And then, like I said, working on on that solution and kind of pulling that through. And I think that, again, there's been a lot of lip service to it. I think that, that there are there are companies out there, the bigger companies are mm-hmm. developing their kind of product design and, and product chops and for those digital yeah. endpoints. But we're still a long ways away. And I still see a lot of that work happening in a conference room and not getting out to the field, not understanding the patient, not understanding the caregiver. Not for sure. Here's the other piece of it. Mm. Always, 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 in almost every instance, the clinical staff is a second thought. Yeah. So when whenever somebody comes and they're going to build a thing, they're thinking about that 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 endpoint with the patient. 
You're not right. going to get traction if you don't satisfy what the physicians and the nurses are looking for. I mean, I've been threatened by more than one nurse in my career of like, dude, you make me sign into another thing and I'm going to choke you out. Yeah. Right. So there's there's a lot of 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 tension there. They've already you know, they they went into medicine. They're spending 70 percent of their time in front of screens doing stuff that they did not sign up for. Right. right? <laughs> and in in us, it's incumbent up, up on us as designers to bring that to the forefront and be like, you know, empathy goes both ways. We have mm-hmm. to. Make sure that we're designing products that physicians and nurses can use that are not friction laden, that integrate in the right way. Because if they're stressed about a system, when they turn their chair around to talk to the patient, yeah. the patient's going to feel that. Yep. Right. So empathy is kind of a, a trickle down effect. And you've really got to make sure that we're designing the right things for these other, you know, it's not just the patient endpoint. There are other endpoints involved in almost every digital healthcare intervention that we're doing. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, most people leave that as a second thought. Yeah. And, it's, and it's all being done in the conference room and they're not spending time in the field to see those problems. So you'd mentioned the friction of the logins and mm-hmm. having all these different places they have to go to. I wonder about the tension with companies when they want to have a walled garden. They want to protect their IP. And we increasingly live in a world in more called our consumer selves, where a lot of the technology is interactive. It's single sign-on. I'm flowing from one thing to another to another. Is that a tension you think that we're going to resolve in pharma, med tech, and healthcare, where IP seems to be so fundamental? I'm giggling because we've been having this conversation yeah. about interoperability for Forever. the entire time I've been in healthcare and until certain players mm-hmm. start to open that stuff up a little bit, um, we're never going to get to interoperability. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's down to, you know, are we doing it? Are we doing the things we're doing for the bottom line? Are we doing the things we're doing really for the patient? Yeah. That's the big philosophical question that's sitting under that interoperability problem. And sitting where we are, you can yeah. draw a direct line to what the current answer to that question is. Yep. Right. I mean, I'm, I'm still amazed every time, like I go to, I see doctors at two different health systems and because of Apple health, mm-hmm. my health records move very easily because mm-hmm. they both can dump it to Apple and then I can dump from Apple to whoever mm-hmm. that every still to this day, every time I see it blows my mind. But I, I feel for that nurse, I've got to log into 80 things. They probably get to log into 800 of them every single day. Well, and, 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 you, and you're talking about, you know, you're, you're one instance and you're in two health systems. So imagine you've right. got something that requires a bunch of specialists and oh they've all gosh. got different systems, right? And there's all these different logins. And, and quite frankly, probably with Apple Health, you have a better picture of your holistic health mm-hmm. than they are able to gain because they do not have access to all of those right. records, they right? Because they're the not, it's not interoperable in any way, shape, or form. So in that sense, we become our own care coordinator Mm -hmm. because we're the only ones that are gathering that information. The systems don't talk to each other. And it's been that way forever. And we still haven't resolved it. We get closer. You know, there are things going on with certain codes and the way that we do things, but it's still, um, you know, again, most of the medical records programs are kind of designed to capture billable events and not really manage people's health. Mm-hmm. Um, so that interoperability and the way that that data and and the workflow of that is very much around that and not and yeah. not centered on, on the human being that we're trying to help live a healthy life. Yeah. And you know, shifting a little bit, you, know, you mentioned context a couple of times. Mm-hmm. One of the contexts that that's coming up increasingly in, in a bunch of different forms is the cultural context both in the sense of we have a wide range of cultures across the United States, but also increasingly companies that are crossing borders and they're doing work in different places. 
same challenge? Are you seeing the same thing? Are we are we making progress there in adapting the work or same issues? Same issues. Yeah. You know, and, and that's a harder one to, mm-hmm. to bridge. I mean, even if you look at the culture just within the boundaries of the United States, to your point, there's a lot of different cultures that live here, but but we're kind of losing more and more culture because we are glued to our screens and it is about the individual and it is not about the community and it's not about growing up. Like I read an interesting article yesterday about kind of the, the back years and years and years ago, twenties, thirties, you know, there was still a curriculum around kind of morals, whether, whether that oh, be yeah. whatever, whatever that, <laughs> however that curriculum was constructed, right. you know, choose your, choose your own, your own method there, um, whether it was theological or whatever, but with that kind of going away and the more teaching of individuality, now we're just sunk in these screens because we're only worried about our little world, right? Yeah, and so, when there becomes a, a bit of a mass culture, like the yeah. the uniquenesses sort of fade, right? Accents are going away. Yeah, the Minnesotan doesn't sound as Minnesotan anymore. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So the so there's 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 cultures, but then it's it's isolated out in in a sense that everything is yeah. becoming one and in a really bad kind of crappy way. So if I go to maybe the positive side of all of this, do you think, have we had the catharsis maybe? Like I was thinking when the dot-com bubble happened and a lot of money was lit on fire, a lot of companies were lit on fire, but out of that came, you know, some of the most amazing technology of the next two or now three decades almost that we've gone on. Are we going through that maybe now with digital health of this? Absolutely. Yeah. I absolutely think we are. And that's what I said, you know, to, to the opening remarks that I think we're just getting started. Yeah. Because here's the deal, right? Digital is ubiquitous. Mm-hmm. It is only going to continue to grow. You know, I, I mean, the conversation around AI and chat GPT, which we do not <laughs> want to get into in this in this one. But but it, it, that stuff's not going away. Right. Yep. And healthcare is not going away. And the problems certainly aren't going away. No. There's enough problems in, in, in the U.S. healthcare system for me to work on for the rest of my career. For sure. Right. Yeah. So that stuff's not going away and it will continue to lean more and more digital. But I do think we are at a at an inflection point on what that's going to start to look like. I think investors are very much putting their money on real bets now. Mm-hmm. I think that the amount of failures that have happened out there are causing people to maybe get out of that, like, you know, the healthcare. And, and like I said, we do a lot of work in fintech is not a space to go fast and break shit. Right. Yeah. And that's a, that's a poor mentality. I think that the, you know, that was, uh, there's a few Silicon Valley folks mm-hmm. that want to, that want to abide by that. I think a more thoughtful evidence-based mindful approach to how right. we build these things is is going to actually win out over the long haul. And and you're starting to see that. So yeah. absolutely at an inflection point, um, I see only like really interesting and, and cool things to come right because of it. And, and I just think that the, the space will continue to grow and we'll, we'll continue to do more and more. Yeah. So do, with that, does that change? You know, I suspect it doesn't change what, what MentorMate is doing day to day. But do you do you feel more positive about it? Do you, are you finding the customers or the companies that are coming to you are more willing to embrace that change, or is it still? Do you have to pull them into it a bit? Yes, yes, on both accounts. I mean, yeah. you know, the the particularly the design practice in its mm-hmm. current state at MentorMate is only four years old since wow. since I joined oh, yeah, yeah. joined the company. And we've 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 experienced a tremendous amount of growth and really shifted to that enterprise design thinking methodology. Which means then we've also started to think about 
different customers and, and how we're approaching them. Because here's the thing with, with human-centered design that I have found through teaching it and, and through practicing it for, for over 20-some years now is that you can't force it on people. Mm-hmm. The, the company has to have that readiness for change, and they've got to want to lean in and want to do things that way. Because if they don't and you're trying to push that uphill, yep. it's not going to happen. Now, that, I don't want to discourage all the folks that are internal in the companies and are going to try to push up that because you can win and there's ways of getting there and there's ways of kind of developing a design organization inside of one of these large pharmaceuticals or insurance mm-hmm. payer or whatever, right? All of those places can do that work and do good work. But it takes time and and it takes effort in, in order to get and to create that change inside of those organizations. So for us, you know, we're looking a lot more at folks that do want to engage with that. Um, obviously, we're, we're, we continue to work on on kind of bigger, more enterprise accounts that those folks are further along in their maturity yep. and more interested in, in that kind of work versus, you know, when you're when you're bootstrapping, it can be a fair amount of money. Mm-hmm. However, you know, we've proven out over and over doing that upfront work is going to save you a ton of work down the road. Yeah. And, and that's Nothing what people just like don't having to redo. It. Yeah. And, and, and folks just don't get that yet. That's the, that, there's a, there's an immediacy to back to the, to the cultural things we were talking about yeah. before. There's an immediacy and in, in, in an immediacy in our capitalist system where we're thinking mm-hmm. quarterly earnings and not looking as much at the kind of long tail of, of a play. Mm-hmm. And, and even in, in those quarterly kind of mindsets, right? If you do that work up front, you will save yourself again, back to defining the right problem, yep. defining the right solution for it, then go like crazy and, and build like crazy, but have a plan and have a map and know where you're headed. Yeah. Well, and I have to imagine it, it can become very easy to use some of the buzzwordy stuff, whether it's AI or crypto a year ago or whatever it might be next year, to create an inflated value or inflated perception, but the, the real hard work of doing this the right way. Yeah. I mean, sometimes when I hear you describe it, it makes me think it's not really technology. Like the technology is a, a tool you're using, but it, it kind of sounds like if I, if I oversimplify it, you're talking about listening to people deeply, understanding them for them. And then, yes, you're translating that into technology, but that's that's not the lead. Yeah. Technology is the means to the end. Yeah. Right. And and, and will continue to be. Um, so, yeah, I think yeah. I think you're, you're spot on with that. Right on. All right. Well, last question, completely different area. I know you're pretty well dialed into the food scene here and all over the place. So I always get asked, and this is selfish, any good recommendations, new places here or elsewhere that you've seen where you're like, go check this out. I have not been going out to eat as much. I became much more of a homebody. Um, However, I travel a lot for work. So, you know, I'm in Bulgaria and Paraguay quite often. Um, Uh Let's just say I'm eating a lot of meat in both yeah, of yeah. those places because they're <laughs> very meat forward cultures. We, you know, we, we, I was just down with the, the new design team that we stood up in Paraguay and had a bunch of different barbecues. It is a whole thing down there. Um, uh-huh. uh, the asada and the parrilla. Yep. It's, it's uh, definitely worth checking out if you're ever in that part of the world. Right on. Very cool. Well, Denny, thank you. It's great to have you back on. We'll do it again soon. Absolutely. Fun yeah. as always. Indeed. And folks, that's been another episode of the Medical Alley Podcast. If you're not already a subscriber, make sure you get over to medicalalleypodcast.org, or you can find us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And do me a favor, share this episode with just one other person. If everyone listening did that, we'd help spread this story and so many other great stories coming out of Medical Alley further. I'd really appreciate it. Until next time, have a great day.